I always looked at people 10 years or maybe 15 years my senior and said, do I want that life? Not just the job. Do I want their compensation, their title, the respect they have in the community, the type of work they do, the lifestyle, the relationship they have with their friends and family? Look at at your company or at your career path and look 5, 10, 15 years ahead and be really intentional about it because otherwise you'll wake up in the blink of an eye and you'll have that guy's job or that gal's job five or 10 years from now. And do you want that? Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. This place is sick. Oh, thank you. Did you buy it on Zillow? I probably did find it on Zillow. I can't remember for sure. I did buy another house that we bid X for and they countered it Y and then we bid X and they countered it Z and Z was a really weird number like seven, eight, two, four, three, five, whatever. And I asked, I remember asking my agent, like, what is that weird number? And he's like, that's this estimate. (laughs) So, so the seller, the seller actually counted it exactly this estimate. And I didn't realize. So, (laughs) yeah. So I have been, have sometimes had to be on the receiving end of, of real estate irony. When you walk around now in LA or neighborhoods after Zillow, do you have a different appreciation for just like homes, neighborhoods, generally like communities that people live in? Definitely. I love real estate and I walk around all sorts of places with the Zillow app open on my phone looking at home values. I just did that the other day. Oh gosh, where was I? Uh, well, I did this when I was in South Carolina for the first time this summer. Mm. You know, I was there on vacation and pulled out the Zillow app to see what houses were worth. And I just did it in Newport the other day. So yeah, I love real estate and I love real estate voyeurism. Do you miss it? You're keeping yourself busy, but in very different ways. Your version of busy today, which by the way, may even be more busy than you've ever been based on what I can tell, but it's very different than running a whatever 3,000 plus person organization. Do you ever miss that? It is very different. Uh, Today, I am very involved in, but don't run five companies and then I'm an investor in almost a hundred more. So I spend all day today context switching between different startups and providing advice and counsel and mentorship to other founders who are trying to create their own Zillow. Do I miss the Zillow experience at all? I miss leading large groups of people. I enjoyed that a lot. And I also miss having access to much more resources. The nice thing about running a company like Zillow is you're playing poker with a very big stack of chips. And when we saw an opportunity, it was very easy at Zillow to say, hey, let's throw 20 bodies at that. Let's throw 5 million bucks at that. Or we saw a company we want to buy, we would go buy it. And being able to make big bets, big bold bets is fun. And almost every company I'm involved in now is incredibly resource constrained, where it's the opposite. It's instead of, hey, let's place big bets, it's, hey, how can we run leaner? How can we place fewer bets? How can we be more focused? And so that's a very different position to be in. It's playing poker with a small stack, not the big stack. And how long has it been since Zillow? Four years I left about four years ago. I joined KP about four years ago, meaning I left full-time operating in the traditional sense and went into more of a, it's different, right? It's kind of similar to what you're doing. And I definitely 
after four years, get the feeling that, okay, like they're doing the hard thing. And sometimes I miss the hard thing. This feeling of being in it rather than on the outside looking in, giving a limited set of advice that may or may not be helpful. Sometimes I almost feel guilty. Well, I had, I had one operator turned VC describe this feeling to me in the following way. He said, you know how when you're watching like the Super Bowl or the World Series or something and you imagine the Super Bowl, the, the team wins and on the field they're going crazy and you know, oh my God. Uh, and then they flash to the owner's box and there's some old guy in a tie with cufflinks and he's kind of awkwardly high-fiving his grandson. Like that's the VC. And on the field, those are the operators. And so the highs are not as high, the lows are not as low when you're up in the owner's box. It's a different perspective. I would describe it a little bit differently maybe mm. because maybe I think I'm not really in the owner's box. I'm kind of on the sideline. And I would describe it as I'm a former player who had a really great career on the field, won a bunch of championships and performed really well with great teams. And now I'm a coach and I'm trying to have a great next chapter as a great coach. And there are a lot of former players that became great coaches and ended up having even more success coaching and yeah. and more leverage coaching because you frankly can coach for an extra 30 or 40 years after you're done playing. Yeah. But playing is exhausting. You get injuries, you know, it's all consuming and coaching is also intense but is a slightly different proposition. How, how old are you? 48. You're still pretty young. Like you started Hotwire at 23. 23. Yes. Zillow started when? How old I think were you? I started Zillow at 30, if I 30. remember correctly. Yeah. My point is like, let's take this analogy to the logical extreme of the player <laughs> coach thing. Yeah. It's like if Brady retired after five, knowing <laughs> that he left a couple more potentially on the field and he's young. When Brady talked about the end of his career, the way that he reflected on it was like, look, it's like going into a test and knowing all the answers. Now, I think that business is much different and I think each business is its own unique thing, but there is some level of confidence in knowing what to do and who to do it with in a lot of different degrees. Do you feel like you're going to do one last dance? Do you ever get that feeling? It's possible. It's possible. I mean, I get calls about CEO roles all the time. Of course. And I've turned a lot of them down over the last four years. I don't have any regrets about the ones that I've turned down. I'm always happy to hear opportunities. And I tell recruiters, they call me when I turn the roles down. Yeah. Keep them coming. Yeah. So yeah, it's possible. But it's a very, very high bar when you've had the good fortune that I've had. I can be really selective. So yeah, it's possible that I yeah. have another chapter as an but operator. But you're not afraid of the work. No, because I, I'm not retired. I work, as you said, I work harder or I work as long hours today. I travel less, but I work as long hours today across a hundred companies as I did when I was working on one company. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when you think about if you were to ever do one, and again, we're living in like hypothetical la-la land here. Like I could come back to your crib in 10 years and you're still at HQ right here and still advising companies, but you're an entrepreneur, do you not want to do the zero to one? I feel like I am doing the zero to one. I'm just doing it as a co-founder. So what I'm mostly doing today is I'm running my own startup studio. Yeah. And I've founded five companies in the last four years that yeah. I'm chair and founder of. So I'm very much doing the zero to one, but I like the role that I'm in, whereby I'll spend a couple hours on a startup. Frequently, it was my idea. Sometimes it's my co-founder's idea. And I'll give a ton of advice. And then I can step back for two mm -hmm. or three days while my co-founder and CEO 
goes and executes. And meanwhile, I'm off to the next one. So I'm coaching on five different fields. Sometimes they're slightly different sports and each game is at a slightly different stage. Some are in the zero to one stage. Some are kind of, you know, in the second or third quarter and later stage. I get to experience and enjoy the thrill of the zero to one stage, but I don't have to be quite as in the muck as a true 100% CEO founder. Totally. What struck me when I was preparing for this is there's a lot of podcasts and videos of you and each one of them has a different title for what you are or who you are, okay? In some cases, it's the .LA co-founder. In some cases, it's the 75 and Sunny co-founder, which is your venture studio in LA. In some cases, it's the Picasso co-founder, which is your second home sharing company. In some cases, it's the Zillow founder. And in some cases, it's the Hotwire founder. Yeah, and some, sometimes it's the Harvard professor, that's which, which I, is another persona. That's right, that's right, yeah, that's no, right. I mean, I, I like to... Uh, somebody described me the other day as I'm the Forrest Gump of technology, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that, but it's not wrong. Um. So, so I'll tell you, like, some of the people that I am most inspired by, not necessarily just in business are those that have the ability to reinvent themselves. I'll give you a really weird example. I think Shaq is the man. Shaq went from this unbelievable basketball player to an incredible investor to he was shit on TNT when he first started to now an incredible TNT announcer to a DJ. Like he has this ability to continue to reinvent himself where almost the basketball player is a footnote of what his career could be. That's how I thought about you when everyone has all these different titles for it. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm not... By the way, do you like... uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm embracing it. I'm not dead yet. I'm not done yet. And I still have more to do and more to give. I'm at a high level. If you kind of take it up to 10,000 feet, I'm in the coaching mentoring stage where I'm trying to help others achieve their full success. But as I say, I'm doing that across a couple different fields simultaneously, fields in the metaphorical sense, like athletics, but Mm -hmm. also fields in the professional sense Mm -hmm. of like different industries. And it's rewarding. The context switching can be hard, but it's an exciting chapter to be in. Yeah, for sure. It's inspiring. It really does inspire me because I, I aspire to do that. I think it's really cool that there is a potential world where people may not even remember you for Zillow. And that's like pretty amazing because everybody knows that company. That would be amazing. If I'm fortunate enough to be half as successful in any of the things I'm doing now as what Zillow was, and I could be known as in some other way, that would be cool. Yeah. Well, isn't it interesting because it's kind of what your father did? Yes. So my dad was an entrepreneur was an accountant turned entrepreneur. And he also had several chapters in his career. And I studied that closely and was, it was at his knee and at his hip and at his shoulder during all of that. So just to tell listeners quickly, my father's entrepreneurial journey, he started out as an accountant. He was a partner at a big eight accounting firm. And in the late sixties or early seventies through complete randomness, he was in the restroom at his New York accounting firm And standing next to him was a British guy who was grumbling, oh, I'm so mad at this stupid accounting firm, blah, blah, blah. My dad said, what's the problem? And he says, yeah, your fancy white shoe accounting firm won't take on my client as an accounting client because you're too good for us. And my dad said, well, who's your client? And he said, the Rolling Stones. 
And my dad ended up taking a leave of absence from the firm to be the tour accountant on what I think was the 1972 European Stones tour. And that started a 40-something year career in music where he became a tour producer and business manager for the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, The Police, um, Shakira, 38 Special, Leonard Skinner, and on and on. And then music changed so much over those 40 years. You know, not just the format, which went obviously from records to eight tracks to cassettes to CDs to streaming, but also the touring industry changed radically through the next couple decades. And musical tastes changed also radically. And my dad was able to change his business model and reinvent himself and his firm through several different iterations as technological changes occurred in music and tastes changed and society changed. And a lot of the innovations that we experience today as concert goers came from him and his team. Things, things like residencies, which we take for granted now, where you've got the U2 residency in Las Vegas or the different people's residencies at different places. He helped pioneer that with Simon and Garfunkel, that was one of his clients. Or 360 touring, where companies like Live Nation buy tours outright, and they spend hundreds of million dollars to basically buy a tour. Mm. And they make the tour be like a movie, where the actors and actresses in movies are basically the work for the producers. And that's the way touring really works today, where a 360 touring company buys the tour and then the talent essentially acts for the producers. He helped pioneer that with the Rolling Stones. And I could go on and on, but I watched all of that. And those many chapters of his career, including just briefly the final chapter of his career, which was focused on electronic music, where he helped roll up and try to professionalize the EDM industry, the electronic dance music industry in the 2010s, very much like he helped professionalize the rock and roll industry in the 80s and 90s. Yes, those many chapters of his career in a very different industry from tech were inspiring to me and formative for me. It's pretty badass. <laughs> and he was a good accountant, right? <laughs> he like was he a was, good accountant, yes. He wasn't like a shitty accountant that was desperate to get out of that place. <laughs> no, no. He was the youngest partner ever in the history of his firm. He was a good accountant. And, you know, the interesting thing about, about him was actually he wasn't that passionate about music. He viewed the talent, he viewed these bands as product. Maybe like the way I view engineers at software companies, like they're the ones that create the product and they're brilliant in their own way, but I'm not an engineer. I'm not a, I don't write code and my dad never played any music, but he had other business skills that helped those who created product, in this case, music and entertainment, create great businesses through his intellect. And so growing up, well, one of the questions that I generally ask is what conversation was like at the dinner table. Were you in hotel rooms? Like, were you uh, yes. touring? Like, uh, what I, well, was yeah, that like? A lot of summers we toured. So we toured with the Rolling Stones or U2 or sometimes David Bowie. But yeah, usually the Stones or U2 most summers or many summers. And what was that like? I would go to, we'd be in Europe and I'd go to museums with my mom during the day while my dad was at the venue. And then at night we'd go to the concert. And then the next day we'd go to a different city and my mom and I would go to other different museums and castles and, and uh, then in the evening night oh, we'd go shit. see a different concert. How old were you? Uh, six, seven, eight through 15. And this was yeah. you, your mom? Uh, my brother, some years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And then <laughs> how do you live a normal life like that? Like, how do you like keep in touch with like <laughs> these people, you as a kid don't do what? The resume says. Well, because, like, my like, dad, because you have to understand, my dad was a business person. He was basically the CEO of the company sure. that was the tour. 
And so he he's not partying with you know he's not doing drugs and drinking and yeah. staying out all night with the band and their and their I entourage. Meant more just like um, how good it was. Like yeah. Uh, well, so okay, so I mean, this gets to the title of your podcast, right? Yeah. Grit and how do you teach grit to kids? And this is something that my wife and I talk a lot about because we have three kids and my kids are growing up affluent. I grew up affluent, and I somehow found grit. And my siblings somehow found grit. And I hope my kids find grit. They're off to a good start. But one of the ways that you do that is you teach kids that despite their good fortune, they're not entitled to anything and that they're going to have to earn it themselves. And my parents always made that very clear to my siblings and me that we were going to have to make it on our own despite whatever advantages were gifted to us through education and through our upbringing. Can I ask what's the expectation with your kids? that they achieve their full potential, whatever that might be. Yeah. So, you know, if that's academic, if it's athletic, if it's social, they have to perform and excel and achieve their full potential. And yeah. if that potential is straight A's, great. If there's a class that they don't have the potential to get an A in because it's beyond them, then that's fine too. But it's that they have to treat others as they would want to be treated and they have to achieve their potential. And did you and your brother growing up, like, was there an implicit assumption as there generally is of like, we'll just take the family business? No, on the contrary. There was always a very clear communication that we would not receive any inheritance, any financial advantage. We talked about this a lot as a family that my parents said, they will pay for our education. We'll graduate from whatever the best colleges that we're able to get into debt-free. And I'm grateful for that. And that's it. There'll be not one penny given. I never went to graduate school, so I guess I never tested that. What happens if I want to go to graduate school? Mm. I'm sure they would have paid for that too. But the answer is your education will be taken care of and then you're on your own. And to this day, I'm now in my late 40s. I've never received a penny from my parents, you know, other than the tuitions that they paid for me. And so I won't inherit the family business. I won't inherit any money. It's you're on your own. And my wife and I tell that it's the same thing to our kids as well. And that's a strategy. You know, I mean, there are different families have different approaches to this question. (laughs) That's the approach that my parents took and the approach that my wife and I are taking with our kids. You're doing the same. We are. And then you go to Harvard. Was the transition from that life to going to school, leaving the nest abrupt? No, no. I mean, uh, my high school in LA was a, was a really competitive, academic, mm-hmm. challenging high school. And I felt like my college experience was just a continuation of that. So I felt very well prepared. And I also had traveled extensively and lived away from home and also traveled with my parents. So I was well prepared for the college experience. Can I ask about your brother? Sure. Do yeah. you mind? No, I don't mind at all. Um, what happened? Can sure, you, sure. In high so, school? Uh, yeah, I was 15 and my brother was... 17 or 18, and it was the week of his high school graduation, and he died in a car accident, just a straight-up accident, no drugs or alcohol or anything like that. And he was going to Princeton, and it was two days before his graduation from high school. And he was my only sibling at the time, and that was obviously heartbreaking for me and for my parents. We were all very, very close. And about a year later, my parents decided to have more kids. And so my brother and sister same parents, same marriage and all that, are now about 18 years younger than I am. So I have a much, much younger brother and sister. They're in their early 30s. And they were born out of the grief of my brother's passing. And actually, sort of side note, my 
sister has gone into my dad's industry and is charting her own path in wow. in music. She was at YouTube and Spotify and uh, and now she's in a music management company. Now she's at Riot Games and helping Riot with their music strategy inside and outside of gaming. And so she's following in his path. And my brother's at a, a totally different path working on Capitol Hill and now in environmental policy. You know, the impact on me of my older brother's passing was intense and profound. I think as it relates to this conversation about professional achievement and and all that, for me, it was a kick in the butt to go and kick ass. And that definitely added and created grit for me. It was, how do I go and achieve double? Uh, Go whatever he was going to go to. So it pushed you in the achievement and like, f*** everything. I'm going to go basically beat this pain through achievement. Yes. And try to achieve whatever I was capable of achieving and also whatever he was going to go off and achieve after he, whatever life he was going to go live. I was like, shit, okay, I guess I got to go do double. And, and that drove me probably still drives me a little bit, but it drove me a lot for the first couple decades. It's been almost a couple decades. It's been, um, I guess it's been 30 something years now. So, and maybe relating it back to teaching your kids grit, that feeling, you can't teach that feeling. Well, you can model it. I'm not sure you can teach it. And maybe that's a distinction without a difference. But like my wife is a doctor and my kids have seen, uh, my older daughter saw her go through med school and just how challenging that was and residency and fellowship. And the younger kids have seen just how hard she works in medicine and how hard I work. So I'm not sure we're, you know, you don't teach grit, you just model grit. Mm. And so, yeah, my kids have learned it through that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. When you were trying to compensate through achievement, was that always going to be the mechanism with which you channeled your pain? That is the almost healthiest way to push that grief kind of out into the world. I don't know. I just like, um, I'm not sure how else to ask that Probably. question. Um, well, I don't know. I've never like studied this or read books or thought that much about the different ways to demonstrate grief. I suppose you could let it all out and be really emotive. You can probably tell that's not me. You can keep it all in and not be, Mm. not wear it on your sleeve. You could, that probably describes me more. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how else. I I guess another way some people deal with grief is by sort of spiraling on their own, Mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol, and just Mm -hmm. kind of like moping and feeling a victim. That's not me. My parents decided to channel their grief by having more kids. And the research says that usually or frequently when parents lose a kid, they get divorced. Like it causes such marital pressure and strife that, um, you know, they don't stick together. My parents fortunately chose the opposite extreme. They decided Mm -hmm. to double down Mm -hmm. and have more kids. And, you know, and I'm glad they did. And that kept them happy and together for a couple decades more. You graduate a couple years later. You go to Harvard. Then um, you end up at. I just had this flash to the Jerry Maguire scene when, when, with the Roy Firestone interview of him at the end. When, when he's like, "You're not gonna make me cry. You're not gonna make me cry." <laughs> great, great scene. Uh, I anyway. just make a smooth transition along. Um, All right. Okay. Yes, I graduate. Yeah. And and it's so like it still sticks with you like this. Yes. Yes. This thing just keeps driving you there. Like it it's, yeah. it's keeps you there. Again, I go back to like, you're in a beautiful home. Like you have all these things, but like you can't be more busy right now. And that this isn't by accident. This is just, there's something in you 
that burns these logs. And I suspect it's this feeling that you had when you were 15 years old that lives right there because you can't manufacture people that work this way. You still push yourself. And by the way, you're like the founder of four companies right now, five companies. You don't have to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, uh, you're right. It is common among people like that to have been kicked in the nuts somewhere, you know, yeah. somewhere in their life, like loss of a parent or loss of a sibling or you know, some some huge ad- some adversity trauma. or trauma that yeah. they had to overcome. And, you know, obviously I, I wish my brother hadn't died, but it also helped make me who I am. Yeah, for sure. Are your parents still together? My dad passed away a couple of years ago, but they were married for almost 50 years. It's incredible. They passed away. When I was reading about you, I couldn't believe that you were at a private equity shop that rolled up a bunch of different airlines. And tell me if this is an incorrect story. And at 23, 24, they were like, all right, go spin this thing out, which eventually became Hotwire. Like, that's in fucking, that is in, that's <laughs> insane. Well, yeah, I mean, I spent two years at Goldman Sachs after college, and I'm glad I did. I learned a lot. Investment banking was formative for me, but I wanted to be closer to the operations of a business. And investment banking is all about the deal. And I felt like I, w- I was always listening to a joke, and I never heard the punchline. Like, I would advise on M&A, and we talk about all the synergies that buying some division or merging two companies together would create. But then we were never there three years later when when it came to fruition or not. And so I moved to San Francisco in 1999 to work at TPG, this private equity firm. And TPG, as you point out, had bought or had rolled up a couple airlines. They bought America West out of bankruptcy. They bought Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy. They had sold much of their Continental stake to Northwest. So they controlled a lot of Northwest Airlines. They bought Ryanair in the UK and Europe, which was sort of the Southwest Airlines. It was the largest carrier in Europe. And in 1999, a lot of the private equity firms, including TPG, were trying to figure out how to play the internet. The internet was pretty new. There was this huge boom. All these companies were going public all over the place. And frankly, the captains of private equity were no longer the captains. It was all of a sudden, it was now John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins, not David Bonnerman at TPG that, that had all the attention and headlines. What some private equity firms tried to do is to leverage their portfolio companies into the internet. And TPG's strategy was to put a couple of these airlines or bring a couple of these airlines together and create a consortium company in the discount travel space. And I got staffed on this. This was not my idea. I got staffed on it as a young associate and a guy named Carl Peterson, who was a couple of years ahead of me at TPG. He got staffed on it with me and David Bonnerman, the founder of TPG. It was his idea. And he was the chairman and basically the founder. And we spent about six months writing the business plan, getting these six airlines together, creating the seed funding. The seed round was a $75 million seed check from TPG, which was a pretty big seed check. Dang. And that's like 2021 20, vibes. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, I mean, it was a huge round. And then we kind of all looked at each other and said, you know, maybe we can do this. And so Carl and I went to Bonderman and to TPG and said, hey, we want to leave the firm and, and go run the company. And very fortunately, TPG led us. So Carl became the CEO. I became, I think my, I think originally I was COO or maybe CFO. I think eventually I kind of settled on a VP corp dev and title. And co-founder. And co-founder, yes. And we brought on two other very early folks who became co-founders with us, a guy named Greg Brockway, who went on to found TripIt, 
later and then um, Cherish and a bunch of other startups. Uh, so he was our third co-founder. And then a fourth co-founder was Eric Grossa. Eric went on to become president of Expedia. And then now he's running Inspirado. KP company. KP, oh, I didn't actually know that. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, that was 1999 when we started Hotwire. And the first couple of years were great. The company was growing. We got up to about 200 employees. Things were going really well. And then 9-11 happened. And uh, September 11th, 2001 was a tragedy, obviously, for the country and the world. 3,000 Americans died. Four planes were hijacked. And uh, Hotwire had sold tickets to the hijackers. And we sold not the September 11th flights, but the September 10th flight from Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan that put the Boston cell in position. And uh, the company didn't know that at the time. Well, the company still didn't know it. Just to clarify, the senior team, Carl and I, and I think Eric and Greg found out about it that afternoon when the FBI contacted us and said, what do you know about these customers of yours and, and who bought tickets from you? So I, I just mentioned that detail which is something I, I only started sharing a, a year or two ago after 20 years had passed. I thought it was safe to start sharing that detail to give you a sense of just how palpable our sense of guilt and our eerie connection to this tragedy was. From a business standpoint, it was terrible. We had tens of thousands of customers stranded around the world who flights were, were grounded for, I think it was 12 days. Everyone was afraid to travel. So there were very- you Forget about that yeah, stuff. I mean, there was basically no travel for six months because people were afraid to get on planes. Mm. And then there were a couple of wars started in Afghanistan and then Iraq, you know, after this. And so it was a pretty hard time to be running a travel company. We did our layoff. We went from 200 employees to about 150. I remember as a 25-year-old having to lay people off as a, as a first-time manager. And that was intense and traumatic. And I was, it was uncharted territory for me. And we did our down round, which at the time I didn't, I don't think I really understood fully the implications of, of a down round, but we didn't have much choice. So we kind of had to kind of get it done. I think we raised a $20 million down round from TPG who basically bailed out the company. By two years later, by 2003, so two years after 9-11, four years after founding, the company was doing well again. And we hired Goldman Sachs, where I had worked and where my co-founder Carl had worked to take us public. And we were on an, an IPO trajectory at that point, which was amazing that we had somehow managed through the downturn after 9-11. And then Expedia made us an offer and Expedia ended up buying the company for almost 700 million, which was a great exit considering just how low the company was mm -hmm. after 9-11, just two years earlier. Why'd you wait so long to talk about it? The 9-11 detail? Um, we never told the company at the time. Oh, it, wow. It, it was, sorry. Yeah. To, just to clarify, it was only something that three or four of the top people knew. Our general counsel, Kathleen Phillips, mm -hmm. uh, sure she knew, and you know, one or two other people. I don't know. It just felt, it felt almost exploitative also to share. Yeah. Um, did you feel guilt? Yes. Absolutely. You did. Yes, I did. I've never talked with my co-founders about whether they felt guilty, but yes, I, I felt guilt. Like, obviously, we were selling tens of thousands of airline tickets a day. We couldn't certainly know who our customers were, but it's probably a little bit like the Israel tragedy that is that we're witnessing right now, where if you have friends in Israel, because it's such a small country, everyone there has one degree of separation away mm -hmm. from one of the thousand or so people that were, were murdered or the couple hundred people that were kidnapped. On October 7th, if you have a truly personal connection to something, it like I felt we did through Hotwire 9-11, it just becomes even more palpable and traumatic. I mean, I also, I guess I had two other personal connections to it. I had, first of all, a family friend was on one of the flights that died, and I knew her very well, and she was one of my parents' closest friends. And then 
I was on the flight on September 10th, the Newark to SFO flight, Come on. the same exact flight number. I think it was flight 77, the one that was ended up in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, that heroically was, you know, the hijackers were wrestled to the ground by the passengers. And, and then that plane, I think, was headed to the White House or the Capitol. I think we're still not sure where it was going. But anyway, I was on that flight a day before and I had spoken at the Millennium Hilton in New York on September 9th. I gave a speech at a hotel conference there. And the Millennium Hilton was demolished on September 11th, you know, when the Twin Towers fell on the Millennium Hilton in um, the World Trade Center. So I also had this personal connection was saved by 24 hours. I mean, if the conference had been on September 10th yeah. and my flight home had been September 11th, yeah. I would have, I obviously would have died. So I felt that personal connection. The company felt the personal connection. I don't know. It just felt sort of exploitative to, yeah, that makes sense. to share all this until, and, until recently. And, um, did it fuel you again? Or did this one paralyze you a little bit? Um, it was pretty similar to my brother's death, I guess. Paralyzed for a couple of hours and then sort of spring into action. I mean, I remember that day on September 11th. It was also the day that my wife moved from San Francisco to med school. So she was moving into med school in Seattle. I was in San Francisco in my apartment, in our apartment, watching the news. And San Francisco was shut down. There were threats all over the place. You weren't able to leave your apartment. Nobody was in, in offices downtown. But by that afternoon, we had to do something. We had thousands of customers, tens of thousands yeah. of customers that were all over the world and wanted to know what the hell Hotwire, their travel agency, was going to do about it. So we had a couple of hours of trauma, grief, and paralyzation. And then by that afternoon, we were building out phone trees. I mean, there was no internet. There was barely any internet. There was no Slack. There was no, you know, I don't think there was even texting. You know, like, I mean, obviously there was internet because Hotwire was an internet company, but just to give you a sense, like we were building out phone trees to call employees and tell them like, don't go to the office. And like, it was, Holy shit. you know, and then by that afternoon and by that evening, we were trying to figure out the big question. And there's actually a Harvard business school case study on this question is what do we do about refunds? Uh, we had tens of millions of dollars that customers had bought tickets in hotel rooms for the next couple of weeks and they wanted their money back, but we sold a non-refundable product. And the airlines and hotels weren't going to give us the money back. And the credit card processor wanted a line of credit for us to keep being able to process credit cards because they thought we were probably going to go out of business. And they were right. And so the HBS case study is about exactly this. It's, oh, shit, what do we do? Do you do the refund? Yeah. And that's just a small part of it. It's like, in general, what the hell do you do when you're running a company? And by the way, this isn't abstract. What do you do when you're running a company and all of a sudden a pandemic happens and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, your employees can't go to work and your yeah, or customers or want or their SVB money back. shuts down. Yeah, or SVB shuts down <laughs> yeah, or yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. So like, you know, these so-called black swans, they happen yeah, more, more, frequently more often than, yeah, than you think. Yeah. So it's a very good case study that they wrote about it and they and I teach it at HBS now. It's badass. Um, you know, in and the, did you refund? In the first person. And yes, we refunded and we renegotiated with the um, credit card processor and we did our down round and we did our layoff and we sort of somehow pulled a rabbit out of the hat. But boy, in it was hard. In these situations, <laughs> isn't the right answer pretty much always to make your customer whole if you can afford it. But it's like, well, what if you have, I don't remember the details of the case, but you know, if you have nine months of cash left and refunding sure. takes you down to three months, yeah, do, yeah. Do, you know, yeah, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Again, like a lot of companies we're dealing with very similar stuff through the, the last couple of years of, of challenges. Yeah. When TPG came in, did they wipe out the cap table? Yes. So they recapitalized the whole they company. They recapped the company. Again, I, I this is- And you were 25. Yeah. And you had no idea. Advice I give to founders is all that stuff 
that you hear lick pref and ratchet and preferred and common, all these words that you kind of fake your way through, you know, and you sort of know what a safe with cap is like, go learn it or get a lawyer that knows it well, or, you know, figure out how to talk to ChatGPT about it because it's important stuff. Like all of that stuff is about what happens when things go sideways or go south. And you don't think early on that any of that's going to happen, but it might. And it's uh, lessons learned the hard way. Now, again, we didn't have much choice at the time. It was kind of a take it or leave it type situation. And I'm very, very fortunate. We're very fortunate that TPG bailed out the company the way it did and that we had a, a great exit, which returned a lot of capital to the preferred shareholders and a little bit of capital to the common equity. But down routes can be punitive and there are a lot of companies going through them right now. Yeah, this great euphemism of quote unquote structure, which founders are hearing all the time and VCs are saying all the time, oh, that round has structure, that round has structure. Like, well, okay, figure out what that really means mm-hmm. and make sure that you understand it as well as the investors. Mm-hmm. So you didn't, you didn't make as much as everyone no, on the outside I, would have I, 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 imagined. I made, a, I made a million bucks. I think I've shared that. I'll share it again. We sold the company for $685 million, <laughs> which was the highest. You were a co-founder. I was a co-founder. It was the highest ever cash sale of an internet company to up to that date of time, 2003. And I made a million dollars. And I bought a house in Seattle. bought my first house. I bought a $700,000 house for whatever, 500,000 down, I think. And I put $350,000 into my next startup, which was Zillow. And that $350,000 would, would make up for that would work your out. misgivings. <laughs> yes. Were you like, what the <laughs> f-? Like <laughs> there's all these headlines about biggest cash acquisition yeah. in a tech company. You're the co-founder. <laughs> you're young. Like everyone thinks you're the man, but you're like, wait a second. I just did all this work yeah. and somehow I didn't come it, out. It's funny. I just watched a documentary about Juul, the vaping company. It's called Big Vape on Netflix. And this was one of the big things that their employees focused on that all their friends and family were like, oh, you know, you must have made so much money, so much money. And they made very, very, very little money. And just how that dissonance was really stressful for for them. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, look, but I have no complaints and no regrets. I was 27. I had an incredible exit. I learned more in those four years than I ever possibly would have learned in business school or doing anything else. I made uh, incredible relationships and friends that uh, last to this day. And that experience enabled me to do everything that I've done since then. So I have a really positive outlook on it, even though I, I didn't make as much money as and I would have liked. And you rolled the rest of that money, the 350 into Expedia, as like Zilla. instead of into raising Zilla. money? Sorry. Uh, instead of, yeah. So what happened was we sold Hotwire on my honeymoon in 2003. Oh, your wife must have loved um, that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like calling in from my, my honeymoon and, you know, to call my co-founder, like, hey, the deal closed, the deal closed. And so anyway, we closed the deal a week. I got back and then I immediately moved to Seattle because that's where my wife had moved from San Francisco to Seattle. And so I worked at Expedia, the new parent company of Hotwire. And I was at Expedia for about a year and I had the entrepreneurial bug again. I wanted to do a startup. I wasn't that happy at a big company that I thought wasn't moving fast enough. And so When I left Expedia, I joined up with two other early folks from Expedia and we started Zillow and we raised, I'm trying to remember here, I think we raised six million in that pre-seed round. I put in 350, one of my co-founders did 2.5 million, the other did 2.5 million, and then the other couple early employees did the other 600 something thousand bucks. And so that was the first $6 million pre-seed that we did just from the employees to start. Wow. 
You don't see that very often anymore. No. And then the Series A was Benchmark and TCV, and that was, I think, a $25 million Series A. Yeah, but you're happy you guys yeah. did it on, on your own now. Yeah, 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 for sure. And I mean, that bootstrap round, which is basically, that's basically the model I'm following now when I'm starting new companies, that can make all the difference or can make a lot of the difference uh, in the returns. And it was a bet on ourselves. And by the way, we had no idea what we were doing at the time. It was like, let's start something in real estate, digital real estate. And we had no idea. And I'm happy to get into detail on that if you want. And even after Hotwire, you still felt unequipped as a founder in the travel B2C space? Yes. I was still learning a lot about startups. And at 27, I mean, yes, I had had the Hotwire experience and then just a short stint at Expedia, but I was still a 27-year-old co-founder. My first role was COO and then CMO. And then I was CFO for a while at Zillow. And then about a year, when we did the series A, I became CEO. And so I was a first time CEO. I was still only 27 and it was a brand new industry. And it was, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like I'm still learning, but yeah. I was really still learning back then. At the series A, when you became the CEO, was Zillow still just basically the Zestimate? Yes. Well, we, we raised the Series A, if I remember correctly, pre-launch. Nobody's, nobody knows that. Yeah, it is kind of surprising to me. I sort of take that for granted. We launched in 2006. Let me back up, actually. We knew we wanted to start a company. and <laughs> We weren't sure what we were going to do. And we spent about three months in a conference room trying to figure out what to do. And like most great startup ideas, we started solving problems that we were having ourselves. And... We were editing family photos on hard drives was one of the things that we were all doing because we'd all been working so hard for the last 10 or so years and we had all these digital photos that were taken on digital cameras. Remember, there are no smartphones yet. And all of those photos were on these hard drives and we were editing them and we're like, oh, there's something here around file swapping, file sharing. And basically behind door A, startup idea letter A was Dropbox. And Dropbox didn't exist. The cloud didn't exist. Mm -hmm. There was no Box, no Dropbox, no Azure, no AWS. And so the first idea was, let's do a file sharing, file swapping storage thing. And the other thing we were doing was we were all buying homes. As I I mentioned, I I bought my first home at that point with my Hotwire money. And so I was shopping for a home and my two co-founders were shopping for homes. And so we were building mashups of King County, which is the county in Seattle, King County website data, Google Maps data, MLS data, kind of piecing together what would a, a home shopping experience look like for us personally. And so those are the two startup ideas that we had when we weren't sure what to do. We decided not to do the file sharing thing because we thought cloud would be a race to the bottom on price. We thought that eventually the internet giants would give cloud storage, cloud services away for free to get you into their ecosystem. Now, we never predicted it would be Amazon. Relatively prudent. Uh, Yeah, it was super prudent. We were totally right, strategically, but totally wrong about who it was. We never thought it would be Amazon. They sold books and and DVDs at the time. We never thought it would be Google. They were a search engine at the time. We never thought it would be Microsoft. They sold Outlook and Office at the time. We thought it would be like Yahoo or eBay or PayPal or whatever. Anyway, so that's why we didn't do that idea. And we did decide to do the real estate idea. And so then we were like, okay, let's build a real estate website. How do we get traffic? And the idea was we observed that every real estate site answered one question, which was what's for sale. And we said, well, that's kind of interesting. But the more interesting question is what's your home worth? And so we spent the next six months building models to try to value as many homes as we could. When we launched in February of 2006, we had Zestimates on 40 million homes. So a price on about half the rooftops in America and publicly available data, bed, bath, square footage, and prior sale data. And that was it. No listings, 
nothing for sale, no rentals, no reviews of real estate agents, no lending, no mortgage, mm-hmm. no anything else. And we got about a million visitors on the first day. We got about 4 million visitors in the first month. I think even to this day, that's faster than anything. It was faster than Snap or Instagram. It was faster than ChatGPT even. I don't think they had a million users on the first day. So It was on. Yeah. I mean, there was huge traffic because of the voyeurism of, oh, I can Zillow my ex-girlfriend's house or my boss's house or see what my parents' house is worth. And so we had huge traffic initially. But then it took about two years to get back to that same traffic level. (laughs) So this huge burst of traffic, everyone checked this estimate and then everyone went away. And then we had to grind and find grit. And by two years later, we find ourselves in 2008 during the financial crisis. And at that point, we went to brokerages and said, hey, give us your listings. Put listings on our website. We were a top five website at the time, top five real estate website. We had 10 million visitors. And we said, put your listings, it's free. And at that point, we added listings only once Zillow was a couple years old. How often are founders that are in your portfolio looking for their version of a Zestimate. <laughs> like every day. Uh, gosh, I hear that all the time. I hear that all I the bet. time. Yeah. And, and like, how do you, can you like, <laughs> like, like <laughs> I usually say, I wish I knew, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, we do our best, like, uh, you know, Q, which is a, a startup right now, has a startup that I'm a founder of, which is a streaming discovery service. It has a pretty viral feature, kind of a swipe left, swipe right on movie and TV titles. And we hope that becomes its estimate because it has a lot of K factor and a lot of virality built in where it's like a fun game and it helped, it ties directly to the product the same way this estimate ties directly to home shopping. But yeah, I hear it all the time from founders of, you know, Hey, how do I come up with this estimate? You Run or ran? Is this podcast that you were running when you interviewed like Cheryl and yeah. Satya? And that, is that still like It's still active? around. It's called Office Hours. We've done about 100 episodes. Okay. Yes. So I started, but it's not like you're not pumping him out weekly. I, I'm on a hiatus right okay, now. Okay. I, so I started at Zillow almost 10 years ago. And yes, I've had, you know, Satya Nadella and Charles Sandberg and yeah. lots of great guests. And then when I left Zillow, I took the podcast over and it's produced by .LA now, which is my company that covers the LA tech ecosystem. And so, yes, it, Office Hours is still very much alive. It's just uh, I'm not doing episodes. So it's right now, I'll probably start up again in Q1. Okay. The reason I ask is because you do these podcasts, you get to meet all these successful people, right? You now are Spencer, you get to meet successful people because of just what you've done, right? You invest in a lot of companies. So you have to like, you see all these things, right? Do you ever have this thing where, again, going back to my Zestimate question that people ask you, people ask me about this podcast all the time. I'm 160 episodes in. We've had all of these incredible guests do it weekly. And they always ask me for patterns. Always. Like, what are the common threads? And I get really frustrated because I've spent enormous amounts of time trying to pull common threads amongst all of these journeys, rides, companies, entrepreneurs. And it's really hard because in my experience, I have found... It's hard to tell someone why Zestimate worked. It just worked, you know? And the reason the show is called Grit is because I'm quite convinced that that is definitely the one thing that has to be there. The only other thing that I have pretty consistently and surprisingly found is a really strong partner at home, husband or wife. And like, what I really want to be able to say is, oh, they hired this person in this profile early. They 
had a problem that they were looking to, that they felt in their own life, like all the canonical and conventional wisdom, I find it very difficult to wrap it neatly in a way that I would argue most venture capitalists do, and then spit that advice back out to other entrepreneurs. Do you have an easy time drawing through lines between all of these success cases that you've had the opportunity to study? I would add two through lines that I've seen consistently. One is the founder product fit. So Mm -hmm. personal connection from the founder to the problem. Mm -hmm. And the second is their ability to recruit, retain, and motivate teams of people. That's probably the most important thing is one's ability to grow a team and attract great people, especially the first couple dozen people that then build the early product and create the culture for the company. Yeah. The problem is, is there's actually on the recruiting and retaining talent, I can't think of many counterexamples, but on the founder product fit, as an example, like how do you reconcile when companies pivot? Meaning like with your Stuart from Slack. Yeah, that's the example I was thinking of who has been on my podcast also uh, <laughs> talking about that topic. I mean, I think that founder product fit can grow. You know, I'm not sure he grew up his whole childhood saying, God, I really want to build workplace productivity software. Sure. But yeah, and I know he started a gaming company that failed and then pivoted to the Slack product. But I think he learned and developed that founder product fit to the workplace productivity product. I mean, I also, I'm not sure I grew up my whole childhood thinking about how can I help people buy discount travel products. Yeah. But I love travel and I believe in the mission of Hotwire and kind of got on board, yeah. you know, as yeah. we, again, I, as I mentioned, I was staffed on that. It was not my idea. Yeah. I was just, yeah, yeah. I could exactly. have been some other associate that TPG grabbed and, and threw into that. And I could have worked on some other LBO instead. Yeah. But I developed that founder product fit. Yeah. It's almost like there's this greatness there and that you happen to stumble on this greatness and applied it towards a specific problem. In your case, it happens to be in the B2C space that's yeah. continued over time. In your dad's case, he didn't know anything about music. The conventional wisdom that everybody tells me is that the people that are most successful, and by the way, I believe there's an overwhelming amount of examples to your case, like Brian Chesky at Airbnb, the list goes on of folks that have felt a problem and then felt like there's nobody else to solve this and if I don't do it, nobody else is going to. I'll give you two quick stories on this. So I remember when I first met Garrett, my co-founder at Q, I asked him this question. I said, what would happen if I told you you couldn't do this startup? You just, you're not allowed to, you can't work on this. And he just looked at me like, I don't know what to tell you. Like I was put on earth to solve this problem. I wake up every morning trying to figure out how can people yeah. do a better job of figuring out what to watch. And I go to sleep every night obsessing about that. Like that's all I care about. And I was like, okay, you clearly yeah, have obvious it. positive yes, signal. Yes. And then another friend of mine started a company that had a, a good, I think a hundred plus million dollar exit that was a B2B SaaS company for scheduling of fast food workers shifts. So it was like a enterprise software company that would tell a fast food worker when to show up at work. And I was like, wow, that's boring. Like, who cares? It was mm-hmm. kind of what I said to him. He's like, no, no, you don't understand, Spencer. This is the greatest thing ever. This is so on mission. Imagine you're a single parent and you're trying to figure out like how to get the kid to the bus and how to deal with this and care for their sick grandparents and, you know, and like your ability 
to use this software changes lives. It changes their ability to have more time and control. And, blah, blah. and the passion with which he was talking about this software that I found so boring. Yeah. It was so clear that he had a founder connectivity to this problem. And maybe he's faking it or maybe he gained it over time. I'm yeah. not sure. But he had passion for that in a way that I certainly don't. If you ask me to go run that company, even though I'm a good founder and a good tech exec, I'm not sure I'd be great at it. Totally. He was great at it. Totally. So that example always comes to mind when I think about this issue of founder product fit. I am definitely taking the not like the contrarian point of view on this one. Like all of my colleagues would agree with you. Everybody in the venture community agrees with you. Even you brought up Travis earlier. The startup before Uber for Travis was nothing to do with ride sharing. And maybe like if I were to, again, now we're just like, I'm just riffing with you because I think about this a lot. And if you were to maybe like layer it up one, there needs to be an obsession. And the reason there needs to be an obsession is because you cannot be gritty unless you have an obsession. So again, if I go back to my point, and maybe I'm just trying to fit my own narrative here of grit is definitely the thing. Grit is the ability to overcome hard things. If you're not obsessed about the problem that you're solving, you're going to give up easier than others are going to. Now, obsession in its most obvious form is someone that felt a problem that they need to go solve. But obsession, I think, can also be cultivated over time by diving into a problem, realizing the opportunity of that problem, then realizing that there might be a really big company that you can go build that creates a bunch of enterprise value, that solves a problem for a bunch of customers, that hires thousands of people, that you can go make rich, whatever it is, right? I think sometimes the founder product fit is a little more abstract. I'm not sure Travis initially was obsessed with disrupting the taxi industry. I think he was obsessed with trying to make people feel like ballers and press a button and have a black town car arrive and make you feel like the shit. I mean, we're now putting a founder on the psychotherapy couch that, you know, he's not even someone that I know well, but I guess then over time, one can build a connectivity to the problem that they're solving. So like I feel totally connected to the Picasso mission. Second home ownership is something really important to me. I think it can lead, I think it can change lives. I am personally connected to that mission. But I think sometimes it's like a hop or a skip away from, it's not necessarily about doing something in the industry. Maybe it's about trying to help people feel a certain way. Yeah, I completely agree. Anyway, like probably we're not going to solve this here. And if we (laughs) did, we'd be like the greatest investors of all time. The Picasso thing is super interesting to me because it is such an obviously good idea. And I think the product is pretty good. How do you balance this thing where it's almost the worst if there is an obvious idea with a great problem that nobody knows about or that you can't bring to market? Do you think about those two dynamics? I think about it a lot. My co-founder Austin and I talk about this a lot where, I mean, what I usually say is, I think that the idea for Picasso has one of the highest net promoter scores as an idea. Like when you just hear the idea of like- Which is, go ahead, what is it? Okay, it, it lets you buy a portion of a second home. So yeah. you can buy a quarter or an eighth, three-eighths of a second home and you co-own that second home with other folks that you don't know and Picasso does the property management for it. So it lets you supercharge your buying power if you're thinking about owning a second home and you right-size your ownership because you're not going to use that second home all the time anyway. So it's sort of like carpooling for second homes. And then you start doing the math and you're like, holy cow, maybe I could have a quarter of a $4 million home that would be on the beach instead of buying all of a second home that's kind of crappy. It makes a ton of sense and the house wouldn't be wasted and just sit there empty all the time. The hard part is the operational complexity. (laughs) Like ideas are easy, execution is hard. Mm -hmm. And Picasso is a very complicated business to operate. It is not just digital, it's not just bits, there are a lot of atoms 
scheduling is complicated. Mortgage finance is complicated. Property management is complicated. Navigating the real estate industry is complicated. People's psychology of how they own homes is complicated. Yep, absolutely. And it's also an expensive discretionary purchase, which means people can always come up with a reason to put it off. And so it has the potential to be pretty cyclical based on people's perception of their net worth. We have to fight that because actually we think it should be counter-cyclical because people should trade down from buying a whole second home to only buying a Picasso or you know an eighth or a quarter of a second home when they're feeling strapped. But that's a bit of a mind shift also. So yeah, it's hard to pull off. Now, like many of the best ideas, like Airbnb, for example, we didn't invent this concept. So Airbnb didn't invent the idea of renting out your spare room or renting out your house, right? People were always doing that on a do-it-yourself basis. And Picasso didn't invent the idea of a couple of people buying a house together. People have always bought three families, buy a ski house together, parents mm-hmm. and their kids buy a beach house together. Like this has always happened. But trying to operationalize that and solve some of the challenges with it, the reason that that's not a big thing is because of scheduling, of mortgage, of resale, of governance of the house, of furnishings. Like those are all deal breakers or things that cause you, if you were to do this on your own with a couple of friends, it usually doesn't work out. And so Picasso is trying to solve all those problems at scale. And that's very complicated. Yeah, it's super complicated, but very exciting. So we're at Series C now. We've raised about 250 million of equity. We're in 40 it's markets. 250 million? Yep. Jesus. <laughs> we're, we're, and it is capital intensive. It's capital Wait, intensive. And are you guys buying the houses up front? Not always. So ideally, we're not buying the houses up front. Right. Ideally, we put the home under contract to close in, say, eight weeks, and then we pre-aggregate the demand and have it all spoken for, and we sell it as soon as we buy it, but yeah. it doesn't always work out that way. Otherwise sometimes, you get in a bit of a WeWork situation, potentially. Sometimes we, sometimes we do own sort of stubs of houses, yeah, yeah. which we then have to sell down later. Whereas like a company like uh, Wander is buying all of its properties and then fitting them all out, Yes. right? Yes. Um, yeah, so I mean, we just passed a billion of sales in our third year. It's uh, amazing. We've got thousands of owners. So the product's working really, really well, but we got a long way to go still. You have some really great career thoughts that I was hoping to chat with you about. The first is this notion of a career mirror. Can you talk about what that is? In my case, it's my wife, but more generally, a career mirror is somebody that's in your life. It can be a friend, family member. It can be a psychologist, a priest. It can be anyone in your life that's close enough to you to hold up a mirror to you, but is not like so in the weeds that they're too close to it. So every major career decision that I've made in my life from leaving investment banking to go to private equity, from leaving private equity to start Hotwire, from leaving Hotwire to go to Expedia, from leaving Expedia to start Zillow and on and on, my wife has played a huge role, has usually said to me months before I realized, hey, you know you're unhappy, you know you're not learning anymore at that role, or you know that you were more excited back when you were doing this or doing that. And so that's a career mirror. It's somebody that can help tell you that. And that's critical, I think, for people. That makes sense to me. Right now, is has she held the mirror up to your face? <laughs> she has. And she likes so far what she sees. Although I, I will point out that what you were pushing me on earlier in the conversation of, you know, do you have one more in you? Are you sure you don't want to come out of retirement and get back on, you know, suit up and get back on the field? She says that from time to time. And And she knows what that means for you and the family. She does. And she's okay with the sacrifices. Well, otherwise, what's the alternative? Like you drive yourself into misery, you know, like you, you feel like you left something out on the field. Yes. She would say that she believes that I am very happy with this chapter and I am, 
but she also thinks that there may still be something out there too. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other thing that I love that you talk about is how people can evaluate in their career, whether they should stay at a company or in a specific career track. Can you talk about that? I get this question a lot from people that I'm mentoring or friends of, you know, hey, uh, should I leave? Should I stay, et cetera? So my general rubric is, do you feel fairly compensated and appreciated at work? Are you still learning and having fun? And if you're not, if those things aren't the case, then it's probably time to leave. And the only other thing I'd add is that when you're leaving a big company, you can really only do that once. You make that leap once. And so you have to choose that very strategically. I had a call yesterday, for example, with a pretty senior executive who's a friend of mine at a big tech company, one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And he called me. He's like, I'm just not motivated. I'm not excited. I'm not fired up, but I make a lot of money in my current role. Like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, clearly you should leave. I mean, there's no question, but you got to choose your spot really carefully because I use this Amazon one-way door, two-way door thing, Mm -hmm. right? which is the Amazon rubric for making decisions. Whenever they're making a decision, Amazon, they discuss, is this a two-way door decision, meaning you can go backwards through that door, or a one-way door decision, meaning it's a permanent decision. Leaving a senior role at a Google, at a Meta, at a Microsoft, or whatever, at Amazon, like that's kind of a one-way door decision, pretty much, because, uh, I mean, yeah, I guess you could go back, but it's a little bit hard. So it's just, it's a really high bar for a decision like that. That's kind of the framework that I apply to, to that question of, when is it time to leave or not? Yeah. And then you have this idea of like, look at your boss or look at your boss's boss, like the people that are senior to you. Yeah. I I wish people did this more. This is something that I learned in investment banking. I always looked at people 10 years or maybe 15 years my senior and said, do I want that life? The whole package. Not just the job. Not just the job. Do I want their compensation, their title, the respect they have in the community, the type of work they do, the lifestyle, the relationship they have with their friends and family? Do I want that? Because chances are that's what my future holds. And that's one of the reasons I left investment banking. I, I, I liked certain aspects of that life, but not all aspects of it. Notably, the lifestyle Mm -hmm. is very, very difficult and to be in a services business. Mm -hmm. If you're in the services business, whether you're a lawyer, an accountant, an investment banker, you're always at someone's beck and call. And that can be really hard. So I encourage people to do that. Look at at your company or at your career path and look 5, 10, 15 years ahead and be really intentional about it. Because otherwise you'll wake up in the blink of an eye and you'll have that guy's job or that gal's job five or 10 years from now. And do you want that? Going back to your one-way versus two-way door, by the way, I love this concept. Do you feel like people aren't actually good at recognizing one and two-way doors? Let me be specific. My belief is that I think generally people, especially in career decisions, overestimate the idea of risk. I think that in their head, things are much riskier than if they look backwards what their perceived risk, like they didn't calculate that very well. I totally, totally agree. I and just, so people think that two-way doors are one-way doors. I totally agree. People overstate risk. I just had this conversation with someone yesterday. I 100% agree. People have more of a backstop than they might realize. They typically have some savings. They typically can go get a job. I encounter this a lot with people that have been two or three or four years at Zillow, at Google, at Microsoft, whatever, and they're kind of in their mid to late 20s and they're like, they really want to do a startup and they're trying to decide, should I go, should I do it or not? That is a pretty risk-free opportunity for me to leave to go do that. They're not leaving at a super senior level. They can probably go back to some big tech company and rebuild the nest egg if necessary. It's not as risky as they think. Real risk is running into a battle, you know, running into 
a burning building or a hospital which is overflowing with COVID patients or the battlefield in Ukraine or Gaza, like that's real risk. Doing a startup is not real risk. I think really well said. You also have a, another podcast with your son called Dad, I Have a Question. That's so cool. Why did you start that? <laughs> How old is he? My son is 15 now. We started this when he was, oh gosh, probably 10 or 11. Oh, is he becoming too cool for it? He's becoming too knowledgeable for it. Right. He doesn't have as many questions anymore. It's time to rebrand and say, you know, Luke, I have a question and let him teach me. But yeah, we've done almost 100 episodes and it started, actually, I'll credit my late father-in-law who passed away a couple of weeks ago. It was his idea because he would be around the dinner table and Luke would ask me, what's blockchain? What's inflation? What's crypto? How do banks make money? Uh, you know, what's the electoral college? And I would answer. And my father-in-law said, you know, this would make a great podcast. And so my son and I just started throwing episodes out there. We used my phone and recorded them on Anchor, which I guess is now part of Spotify. And we've had, I think, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of listens now. And it's been super fun. I mean, it's if you can teach a 10 or 12 year old about a topic, then you probably understand it well. And that's a good litmus test for your own knowledge. And so the best episodes are the ones where I'm teaching him something that adults think they know, but not really. Yeah. Like what's Web3? How do mortgage rates get set? You know, these things that you kind of think you can sort of fake your way through, but you don't really. I'm know. not sure I could explain the electoral <laughs> college or really how banks work. Like, I don't think I could yeah. really. I get a lot of adults kind of sheepishly admitting to me, like, I love that podcast because actually I, lear I learned a lot. <laughs> from it. So, uh, it's good for kids and also for adults. When you do all these things, you've said the word context switching, which struck me even from the beginning, like right now, when we were setting up, you're going back to email. I have a feeling you're like doing a bunch of emails with a bunch of different people, with a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different ideas. You're fielding a bunch of stuff. Do you do anything tactically to organize I do a couple of sort of obvious things. I use Slack and I've got seven or eight different Slacks. So one for 75 and Sunny, one for Q, one for Recon, one for Picasso, one for .LA, et cetera. So they're all in different Slacks. And then I have different email addresses for every company that I'm involved in. And so my email inbox kind of keeps it all straight because everything is according to whichever company I'm working on and my Slack keeps it straight. I don't do anything on my calendar to keep things organized like that. Like I don't do a day on Picasso yeah. or a day on Libby or anything like that. My calendar is, I mostly play defense on. That makes sense. And then do you like block out times? Are you able to go from Picasso to all of these different companies? And then can you just go straight through like I that? I can, yeah. I, I do just go straight through all day long. All day long, it's 20 minutes on this company, hundred, you know, an hour on that, half an hour on this, do, 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 do. To the earlier part of the conversation about how does this compare with when I was running Zillow, in a lot of ways, it's more exhausting. It's more mentally taxing. Totally. At the end of the day, at 6 p.m., 6.30, I need to exhale. It's a lot. Because of the context switching has an, an additional tax, a mental tax, that it's probably like being an ER doctor where you walk into the room and, you know, is it a kid with a broken ankle or is it a gunshot wound? And it's like, okay, yeah. now I'm into the next room. And it's like, yeah. oh, it's a the flu or whatever. It's very different than being focused on a single specialty, but it keeps it interesting. And I bet that problem <laughs> is worse because most of it is over Zoom. And so you're actually doing way more meetings because you're not walking around, you don't yes. have bathroom breaks. Like at Zillow, you're kind of like roaming the halls. You're right. And actually, I did used to block a lot of time at Zillow, MBWA on my calendar, management by walking around. And I would block half hour, hour, two hours. What is that? 
Um, <laughs> I mean, I would put on my calendar MBWA, which stands for management by walking around. And it would just be time where I would just walk the halls. And it was probably the best time I spent every week. What? A couple hours a week. of I would just sit down with my iPhone. I'd plop down at a desk. You know, there were no offices. Everyone was open space. I'd plop down at a desk and just do email on my phone and then people would come up to me or I would overhear things and I would go talk to people or I'd walk on the sales floor and grab someone's headset and phone jack in to listen to them talking to customers for a while. I'd walk up to an engineer and ask them what bug they're fixing or what they're working on or I'd just crash a meeting and that was invaluable. And obviously you can't do that on Zoom. Yeah. You mentioned like uh, dinner with your family now. I asked about your dinner table when you were growing up, but are you intentional about dinner with your family now? I am. I'm, you know, we, we do our best. It's not, we don't have a hundred percent hit rate, but yeah. at least half the time we do a family dinner. I print a lot of articles, tons of things that I see on Twitter or things that people send me or, or things that I read. I print and I always have a stack of papers of articles that I want to, that I think are relevant or interesting to my kids. So, so you give it to them? Oh, I read them. I read it or I make a kid read it and report back to, to the rest. Are you it's serious? Kind of like a reading comprehension. So it's like, you know, tech news or science news or whatever, you know, what I'll show you after this. I'll show you what's, you know, what my current pile is. And that generally happens at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah. That, that conversation. I ask because first of all, that's actually really cool. I've never heard that kind of hard though, but really cool. Um, <laughs> and second, I ask this question. It's my favorite question just because I think values are instilled and shared with the family at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, it's important. It's important. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Can I ask you like, Take away all this work stuff. What's something you're excited about personally? What are you jazzed up about it without anything to do with work? Hmm. Gosh. I mean, really just my kids. I don't know. Uh, I mean, my daughter's a first year in college, and I'm so excited about that and excited for her and excited about the chapter that she's just embarking on and I'm not playing as big a role in her life as I was when she was here at home, but I'm excited about helping support her through this next chapter. And I'm teaching at Harvard uh, a class on and entrepreneurship. That's where, that's where she is. So in the spring semester, I'll be teaching a course there. Not to her. She's not taking it, but... She won't take uh, it? No, no, I don't think so. But I'm excited to teach. I've taught at Harvard now three... This will be my third year that I'm teaching there at the college and the business school. And so I love teaching, but I guess, I don't know when you ask, I'll accept that as not work. Uh, yeah, it's work ish, but I mean, uh, honestly, but it's mostly, uh, and I guess I'm boring like that. It's mostly work and kids. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the stage of life that I'm at. <laughs> um, you know, I'll give you a hiring shout out for any of the companies that you're involved in right now or any of them hiring? Almost all of them are, you know, very selectively and in sort of limited ways. You can reach me on my socials on any, you know, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on any of my socials. My website is 75andsunny.vc, but you can find me on social and, and feel free to reach out. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what or who do you think of? Maybe it's because you mentioned him earlier, but Tom Brady definitely comes to mind. I'm looking at a picture of Russell Wilson here in my office. I guess that comes to mind. Can I say me? <laughs> I can definitely say you. You, you know what? You would be one of two guests that has said you, and it's and it's badass. It sounds so arrogant. You know, but. no. You know who else was? Have you heard of Carl Eschenbach? I have not. No. Carl Eschenbach was uh, the COO of VMware. Okay. Then went. This guy is a machine. Okay. He travels with a jump rope in his bag at all times, and uh, went to Sequoia as a GP for the last six years. 
talk about people reinventing themselves, became like one of the most gangster investors in the Valley, did all of these incredible growth deals. And now his wife was like, Carl, every day you feel like you're not doing the hard thing. You need to go back. His mirror, his career mirror is also his wife. And he is now the CEO of Workday. He left Sequoia to go be the CEO of Workday. And so I am not surprised to bring it full circle. And I do believe that you are an incredible personification of grit. So thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.